You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. On today's episode of Common Grace, we speak with Paul Stevens about work and how it fits into our daily lives as Christians. In our conversation, we go beyond the church as a Sunday gathering place, and we discuss how Monday through Saturday work is a part of our spiritual life and a calling of ministry. Join us as we explore what it means to be the scattered church. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I want to call you Professor Paul, like Guru Paul. Uh, you just call me. <laughs> just call me Paul. <laughs> well, Paul, we are so grateful for you. This is Paul Stevens, author, missionary, thinker, doer. You have just had a tremendous influence globally. And we get to have the opportunity to glean from your wisdom and, and writings and, and a lot of your, your perspective that you've picked up globally. Not just in the West, but you've, I mean, you've done ministry in Africa and Asia for years and years. And so, so grateful to have you on. I was just going to start us off with just a, a basic question I th- that I think is really important for churches right now. And that is what to you, what is the gathered and scattered church? What's essential to know about that? Hmm. You know, uh, I was influenced by a, a Quaker philosopher. His name is Elton Trueblood. And he came to our theological school when I was actually studying theology. This is a long time ago. I'm 83 now, and I was probably 20, 21 at the time. And he said, uh, you know, you can't take a still picture of a church. You have to take a video. In fact, he said, better still, an angiogram of the heart pumping. And I thought, you know, he's right on. It's ecclesia, which is gathering, and diaspora, which is dispersion. And so, unfortunately, we focus on the gathered life almost to the exclusion of the scattered life. And the scattered life is really, really important, especially for the mission of the church, because the church is created in the mission of God and is a missionary community. And it's not because they're supporting some missionaries to go to Bula Bula land. It's because they've been gripped by the great good news of Jesus and the human flourishing which his kingdom brings and the prospect of the full coming of the kingdom. And so if you've got 100 people who are members of that church or 200, you've got 100 missionaries. And where are they going to do it? They're going to do it not when they gather, except a bit marginally, okay? They're going to do it when they're dispersed, dispersed into homes, neighborhoods, government offices, workplaces. I just think the crazy thing we do in churches is we put a map up on the wall. We put pins where people sleep. Hey, we should put pins where people work because they spend 40 to sometimes 60, 70 hours a week there of their waking hours. Their most precious waking hours are actually spent in the workplace. So you're saying work can be spiritual. Uh, Work is spiritual. It's actually worship too. You know, because the Hebrew word for work and worship are the same word. But that's not just because of the uh, origin of the word that is used in both 
work contexts and worship contexts. But it's because we are called to lift up the world and our productivity, whether it's making a meal or making a deal, to God as an offering, as a spiritual sacrifice. And you know, the, the Roman Catholics have more recently, especially since Vatican II, they've got it. They've written some of the best books on the spirituality of work, including All You Who Labor by Cardinal Wyszynski, who is the mentor for the late Pope John Paul II. He says, you know, he says, if you love God, how can you not tell him when you're working? Your work, he said, is worship to God. And it's also a way of serving your neighbor. So anyway, it's like the blood of the human body. It's pumped out. It brings nutrients and enzymes and hormones to every organ and every limb of the body. And the organs have invisible keys to take out of the blood what it needs. It may be an enzyme, might be a hormone. And in the process, it gets dirty and has to come back to the heart and lungs for oxygenation and cleansing. And that's what we do when we gather. So you're saying the church gathered and then scattering is like the pulmonary system at work. The circulatory system. Mm. Yeah. Well, of course, all the systems are interrelated. So the, the thing is that the thing that Elton Trueblood said, he said, churchgoer is a vulgar, ignorant term and should never be used. You can't go to church. You are the church wherever you go. And he's right. So the three ways, it seems to me, that we bring in the kingdom of God are, first of all, and the kingdom of God is the rule of Jesus as king. God as king. It brings human flourishing. It brings new birth. It's part of the new age. It's not fully here yet. It's here, but not here. And it's now, but not now. It's like the thin edge of a wedge driven into this age with the full coming of the kingdom, which will happen when Christ comes again at the end of human history, then the kingdom will be, as Revelation puts it, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, the church, I think the church has got it mixed up. You know, it's bringing in the church and the church exists to bring in the kingdom. And the kingdom is more than the church. It's actually, I know that not every theologian agrees with this statement, but the church is the servant, the sign, and the sacrament of the kingdom of God. It's kind of an, a visible outcropping of the kingdom. It's like, it's like when you cut a road through a hill so that you don't have to go up and down. You expose the strata, the bedrock, the gravel, the sand, the topsoil. And what you're seeing is the outcropping. But you know there's a lot more sand. There's a lot more gravel. There's a lot more bedrock. And I think that's the way it is with the church, that the church is a visible outcropping. It's kind of like a pole of response to the royal claims of God. But there's a lot more to the kingdom. And we should bring in the kingdom. I've heard you say that Mission is launched every Monday. How is that related to what you're, you're saying here? Because, you know, I just don't think our lives are a bundle of accidents. I think that where we live, where we work, uh, where we play, these are, you know, I think God is sovereignly involved in our lives. 
I mean, we do make really free decisions, but all within the wonderful purpose of God for our lives. And so, you know, the, the workplace is uh, particularly the workplace, a very, very significant place where we're placed. You know, what we do on Monday is really important. It's a practical way of loving our neighbor. It's a way of loving God. But it's also part of the mission of God. So the three ways that we can bring in the kingdom are, first of all, witness, which is declaring <laughs> that God, God is king, God's ruling. And secondly, it's the whereabouts. And here you've got all these metaphors in which Jesus used when he talked about the kingdom. You know, he used the metaphor of yeast. Well, when the yeast is exploding dough, you don't see the yeast. It's, it's invisible, and yet it's working. And the salt, you know, the same thing. The meat's kind of putrefied, but hey, you know, the salt makes it tasty and can't see it now once it's in the meat and light and, and keys penetrating a lock and fire cast down on earth. So the whereabouts of Christians is, you know, and Paul said in Timothy, he said, you know, you have observed my way of life and people are observing us and they're influenced by us. We actually have an influence for the kingdom. It's like osmosis. <laughs> you know, when, when a solvent can permeate a semi-permeable membrane, you know, and our connection with the world is not a, a non-penetratable barrier. It's penetratable. <laughs> I don't know whether that's even a word. And uh, so we have an influence. We, it's, we have a kind of osmosis influence in workplaces, in neighborhoods. And I mean, I could tell you all kinds of stories about that. And then thirdly, uh, witness and whereabouts and then work. I think our work is really important. And, and why? That's where we spend most of our time. It's where we are observed and observe. And thirdly, it's where life issues are raised. I mean, my best friend died of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And the day that he went to find out if he had the disease, he didn't tell his wife or me, his best friend. He told his workmates, I'm going to find out if I've got ALS. And when he came back from the doctor, he said, I do. I mean, it's where life issues arise. And the work itself, if it's good work, and all good work in this life has got bad work in it, including church work. If it's basically good work, it is contributing to human flourishing. It's actually contributing to the kingdom of God in some way that we can't fully understand even. I mean, God's at work in it through our work. And it's not that we're bringing in the kingdom alone. No, it's a, there's a kind of divine human conspiracy, a connection of wills, God's will and our will when we work in that we can actually serve God and God's kingdom and advance the kingdom in our workplace. So witness, whereabouts, and work. Oh, that's good. What would you say to somebody who says, man, I, I've just grown up where it's church is Sundays. Mondays are, are great, but they're not as spiritual. And Sundays where it's at, that's where the church should spend most of its energies and its its thoughts, minds, and and work is on a Sunday. What would you what would you say to that person? <laughs> I'd say, do you know, I have to say that sometimes the weekdays are more, in fact, I'd almost say at least as spiritual as Sunday. 
We need Sunday. We need to gather and we need worship. We need to hear the word of God. And the amazing thing to me about the New Testament, I think my old pal Robert Banks picked this up 30 years ago, that in the New Testament, it never says we gather to worship. Now, they did worship when they gathered. But the reason it doesn't say they're worshiping is they're worshiping all week long. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know, presentation of our whole bodily life to God as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. So what do you gather for? You gather for mutual edification. That happened last night in our home. We had uh, one of our members who, who came with a bottle of oil from Jerusalem and anointed my wife with oil and prayed for her. So we were three in the body and five more on Zoom. It's <laughs> just kind of a strange, but it was sweet. Oh, let me tell you, it was sweet and beautiful. And I really pray that those prayers will bring substantial healing to my wife. Substantial, that's the best we can get in this life because we're all going to die eventually. So during the week, I mean, once... Once you can pick up the idea, once you can pick up the concept, the perspective that uh, I'm here, I'm quoting a, an Orthodox Egyptian monk by the name of Matthew the Poor, and is called the Orthodox Prayer Life, probably the best prayer book that I've read. But he says, life is but the way, the only way to the kingdom of God. Life is the one way to the kingdom of God. It's not just spiritual activities, but life. You know, you think of it, you know, work and relationships and family and marriage and sexuality and handling money and everything. Everything becomes a perspective on uh, actually growing spiritually. One of the things that's popular nowadays is like a resurgence of talking about spiritual formation, a lot of monastic tradition, uh, contemplative traditions. And sometimes, you know, people can start to equate spiritual formation to doing practices. Yeah. Am I hearing a more expansive view on, yeah. on, a, on spiritual formation? How would you maybe frame that? Yeah. You know, the practices are important. And, you know, I, I read three chapters from the Bible every day, a chapter from the the Old Testament, chapter from the Psalms, and a chapter from the New Testament, and I pray. And I go for a 50-minute walk, and I pray. Uh, those are really important practices. I mean, that's just for me. Now, maybe somebody else, it'll be a different practice. And you try to do a retreat once a year and stuff like that, which is great. But, you know, it's going back again to Matthew the poor, life is but one single way to the kingdom of God. So, for instance, you're in leadership, but leadership itself is a spiritual discipline. I mean, you are cast on God because you are out of your depth. I remember speaking to a pastor in a Megan church where I was speaking in Seoul, Korea. They now have 30, uh, 50,000 people, but at the time it was only about 30. Only. Yeah. And I said, you know, what's the biggest challenge you face, you know, trying to pastor 30,000 people? He said, me. I'm not up to it. But you feel that way with five people, 15, 20, 500. And the same thing with marriage and with relationships and work. You know, you 
maybe you know this, I don't know whether you know this, but sort of midlife, I left a thriving pastoral responsibility here in Vancouver. In fact, we've rejoined the church after 40 years, and I have been the chairman of the mission committee, but I left it and became a carpenter. And people said, you've left the ministry. I said, no, I haven't left the ministry. I'm still ministering, you know. I sure, you know, I met with some some guys in a Bible study, and I sometimes preach on Sunday, sometimes teach. But, you know, the work itself and the relationships that I have in the workplace, that's ministry too. But they said, no, 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 you you know, and I, I stopped being a rev at that point. I mean, I've been defrocked, if you like, <laughs> you are, but you... not for moral reasons. Okay. I have to say that. <laughs> That's good. I have to say that everybody on the, I've heard not for moral reasons, <laughs> but um, I'm a non-clergy member of the people of God at the moment. Okay. And there's no clergy and there's no laity in the church. Okay. Uh, the word laity in Greek is it, 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 there is a word for laity in Greek, but it's not found in the New Testament, except in Corinthians 14 and in Acts, the word idiotes, from which we get the English word idiot, is the only word for laity that is used in the New Testament. It's never used by an inspired apostle to describe a Christian. It's used by the Sanhedrin, when Peter and John were preaching with great power, they said, how come these idiots are preaching so powerfully when they haven't been to our seminary? <laughs> you know, and in First Corinthians, uh, when Paul is, he's dealing with speaking in tongues without interpretation, he said, you know, and if an idiot comes into your, your meeting and, and they just hear this gibberish, how are they going to fall? And he's not saying an idiot there is an outsider. So, ironically, there's no laity in the church, and yet the church is full of clergy, because the word kleros in Greek, from which we get the English word clergy, is used not for the leaders only. It's used for the leaders, true, but it's used for the whole people of God. We're all clergy. So, we have this ironic situation of the church of Jesus Christ does not have any layman in the usual, no second-class citizens. Nobody is sort of untrained, unimportant. We're in full-time ministry, all of us. There's no part-time options available for the followers of Jesus. And people say they're going full-time. I said, I didn't think there was an, a part-time option available. You know. <laughs> well, this is, this is revolutionary. Yeah, sure. That's fine. They're full-time. But I was full-time when I was uh, building houses and uh, doing renovations. Yeah, I was full-time mm. following Jesus, full-time ministry. And so the church is full of clergy. And for any listeners that might be unfamiliar with the term laity, um, this, is an, this is an older term for anybody who's not a pastor in a church. If you are That's right. you know, a business owner, you work for the government, you're a teacher, that, yeah. you know, it's an old-fashioned yeah. term for be, being part of the congregation or the church. But you're saying... That there's not there's not this separation between professional pastors and unprofessional Jesus follower pastors. Yeah, yeah, that's revolutionary. That changes everything. Yeah, yeah. So, so my first book was liberating the laity, and yeah, I'm sorry in a way because I used the word which I should have washed my mouth out, you know, because it's it should never be used to describe a Christian person. Okay, so my most academic book is. 
It was published in Britain, first of all, because no American publisher would take it. And it's called The Abolition of the Laity. And then when Erdman's picked it up, they said it's too negative a term for North America. So they changed the title to The Other Six Days. So, <laughs> but, the, but the British title is actually, it's true. It's abolished by the death and resurrection and outpouring of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And we're now in a prophethood of all believers and a priesthood of all believers and a princely rule of all believers. Mm. And the church needs leaders. Yeah, absolutely. It needs people or, you know, George and Evan. It needs, I mean, these, these are really important and wonderful gifts. But as a leader, you don't rise to any higher dignity in the body than being a member of the people of God. Once you are not a people, you are a homeless waif in the universe. And now you are, quoting Peter, you are the people of God. Mm. Man, wow. Mm. And you're at full-time ministry. What does that what does that look like on a practical level to you? You know, if you if you went from just taking a photograph of the church to to actually having a video, like you were saying, a video of the church yeah. during the week, Sunday yeah. through Saturday, what is that? What do you think that looks like? Give us a picture. Yeah, what a brilliant question. Because, you know, why don't we videotape people during the week? I mean, we send videotapes from the foreign mission field, and that's great. That's very important. And now we can Zoom connect with them. I mean, we've done some interviews. Our church, you know, we only do this once a month, but we alternate people that are supported missionaries or organizations we're supporting. And in between weeks, we do... Uh, people in the workplace, and we can Zoom connect with them. But if you can do it live, so much the better. But what about a videotape of, of a mom making a meal for her family? Or a man uh, in a government office, or somebody who's uh, working in a factory, or a person who's a student? And we begin to sort of visualize that these people are actually doing the work of God the work of the Lord. They're actually doing the work of the Lord from Monday to Saturday. Mm. And on Sunday, they're resting. Mm. <laughs> well, this type of faith, it's, it animates all of life. It's not just, you know, it's, spirituality isn't just found in a book or, or doing practices unto themselves. It's all of life becomes yeah. your formation. And it also is, it empowers the, it sounds like it empowers the people of God to do the work of God in wherever they might find themselves. They're not stuck at work. They're sent to work to transform it. So one, one question I have for you, Paul, and thank you for your time and thank you for your, you know, the books you have written, they've had a big impact on my life. What do you think could happen if Christians embraced the scattered church, embraced living their faith out Monday through Saturday in a time like this when we're needing to rebuild our communities? So it is a time, I think, for Christians to be entrepreneurial and creative. Mm. And I think you guys are doing some creative things. You're gathering in parks, you're gathering small groups of people, uh, very small groups of people. You're doing some really creative things. And I don't think we should return to the old normal. I think we'd never be able to. I think it's going to be a new normal. And some of the, the observers of our culture are saying that the pandemic has sped up 
what was going to happen in 10 years to make it happen in about one year or one and a half years. And I think it's true. Artificial intelligence, uh, you know, online learning. I mean, these are huge things that have happened. And, you know, I've been teaching like mad, but I haven't I haven't left our home to do it, okay? And I used to travel the world constantly, you know, Africa and Asia. And and then I almost died five years ago. Uh, and then I had a recurrence in South Korea a year and a half ago. And I was a whole week in the hospital. I could have died, uh, but for a wonderful Christian brother who saved my life. And And so now I've given up international traveling. But hey, you know, I'm connected. This morning with Singapore, and then with Hong Kong, and and now with you guys, <laughs> south of the border, our dear friends. And I just think that it's a time to be creative. That's really good. This is so great, so rich. Thank you. So, Paul, would you would you share with us about the priesthood of all believers and maybe how that's been woven into a bit of your story of your life? Well, thank you. I, but sorry, my life is kind of a crazy story. I was 18. I was baptized as a believer, supposedly, at 16. And I wasn't a believer. I mean, it was a Baptist church supposed to be, you know, that's not supposed to happen, okay? And so I was sitting in the back of the church on Sunday. And I used to, because uh, I'm a design and build person, I'm entrepreneurial. And so I was always designing furniture and boats that I was building and stuff like that. But my eye caught the newsletter of the church, which said that young people meet seven o'clock on Sunday night. I thought, hey, I was a Sunday school dropout when I was 11. I've never been to a youth meeting. I'm going to try it. So I went to the youth meeting and there were 10 people sitting in a, a circle. It was a terrible room. No windows, dirty steam pipes, the bad thing. It's a big church. And I said, hi, I'm Paul Stevens and I'm here to join your group. They said, that's too bad. I said, why is it too bad? They said, it's our last meeting. I said, why is it your last meeting? They said, we can't find anybody to be president. Then they looked at me. They said, if you're willing to be president, we'll keep meeting. I said, it's a deal. <laughs> so I took over the group, but I wasn't a Christian. <laughs> but I figured this church group, they should be reading the Bible and praying. So I organized Bible studies and prayer meetings and stuff like that. And about six months later, at a retreat, which I planned... I got apprehended, as Paul would say, by Jesus Christ. I mean, there's some things leading up to it, okay? Nothing happens in a vacuum. And so I woke up the next morning and I said, you know, I think your president got saved last night. And they were very, very surprised. So I immediately, I immediately wanted to serve God. And I went back, told my pastor, I'm called to the ministry. And he was a wonderful man, just great. But, you know, there wasn't anybody in my life that could tell me I didn't have to be a pastor to serve God full time. I'm not sorry for my life path. I went to university 10 days later. I studied in theological seminary and I've done a doctor of ministry and stuff like that. And I've been a pastor for 20 years and it's wonderful. But I have so I have no regrets and I've been a carpenter and a business person, entrepreneur. And then at 80, uh, 79 years of age, I started an institute called the Institute of Marketplace Transformation, which is where I spend most of my time now. But I have no regrets. It's just that I realized, and it took me a few years to realize it, 
that everybody is called to full-time ministry. Everybody. So under the older covenant before Christ, you had a few prophets, a few priests, and a few kings. But in Christ, everybody is a priest, everybody is a prophet, and everybody is a prince. Now, you will be stronger in one of those three than the other two. It's just the way it is. We're all gifted somewhat differently. But when you read Acts 2, you know, the prophecy of Joel, these old guys will see visions and dream dreams, and young people will see dreams and visions, and, and men's servants and maidservants. I mean, it's, it's universal ministry. And it is the universal priesthood of all believers, the universal prophethood of all believers, and the universal princely rule of all believers. And where does that take place? In the church? Yes, but also in the world. And when you think of it, you know, I'm just thinking of a guy that I knew for some time. His name is Herb Reeser. He worked for IBM in Vancouver. And he got promoted to an administrative job where he didn't have to deal with people. And he went to his boss. He said, please demote me. They said, you're crazy. You've had a promotion stuff. He said, no. He said, what I have to give to this company is how I care for people. And so they demoted him. Then a few months ago, he phoned me up. He said, Paul, he said, will you do my funeral? I said, Herb, I said, are, are you thinking of dying? And he said, well, I'm going to Israel. It's very dangerous. I said, look, I've been four times. It's not that dangerous. There's guns everywhere. No, he says, it's very, very dangerous, you know. And uh, so he said, will you do my funeral? I said, Herb, it's not that bad, you know. And <laughs> finally, he, I said, yes. He said, well, because now he's retired. He said, it'll have to be at First Baptist Church. It's a very big church in Vancouver. And I said, how come first? He said, all the bicycle couriers of Vancouver will be there, hundreds of them. Because when he retired, he just started loving and hanging around the bicycle couriers that take messages from one office to another office and stuff. He's a priest, you know, and a prophet in the workplace is a person who is able to actually see black and white. He can address issues. She can uh, see when things aren't going right, has a big view to see what God's doing and so on. And the same thing with the princely and princessly rule, that this is, again, some people are better at this than others, but we all have some capacity in all three. If someone were to look at you and say, that sounds really nice and biblical, but I don't, I just don't feel like my work matters or it's that important. And it certainly isn't as important as a pastor, what they do on a, on a Sunday. You know, how would you respond to that? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We had a garbage strike in uh, Vancouver a few years ago. And I remember Gordon Free Fee saying, he said, you know, we can do without a mayor for several months in this city. But we sure can't do without garbage stuff, garbage people, you know, people that are collecting, recycling and everything else. And when you think of it, you know, we reward, sometimes we reward the wrong kind of work. I mean, we pay incredible sums for athletes and so on. And the people that are going into seniors' residences and helping out and so on, they're not properly. And, you know, folks that are running daycares for children. I mean, they're not 
adequate, but they're very, very important work. And in fact, all good work is really important, is a practical way of loving your neighbor. Sometimes you can see your neighbor. So the caregiver and a senior's residence, they can see their neighbor. And we have a helper that comes to our home on Tuesdays. And she, uh, because my wife can't do the laundry, and I, I, I'm just, I, I'm doing all the cooking, okay? And she's just wonderful. She really is wonderful, but she's, she's actually loving us. She sees us and she can see that she's loving us through her work. But there's a lot of work you can't, you know, lab technicians and so on. And so when I go to give a blood sample in Life Lab, which is a big chain of, of laboratory outlets in the city here, you know, I sometimes, I don't know whether you watch when they take out vial after vial after vial of blood. I can't watch. I, every time I give blood, I, I faint. So I was encouraged by a nurse once who said, it's only the really macho men that faint. So, but anyway, I say to the uh, technician, I say, you know, what you're doing is really important. I said, it's a practical way of loving your neighbor. Mm. And she said once, she said, yeah, I know that. This is where diagnosis starts. Sometimes it's medication, sometimes surgery. And, but, you know, she, she doesn't see the results. And actually, that's one of the things that's really hard about some jobs is you can't see the results. Mm. And you, you really have got to, you bring meaning to your work. Mm. You're not going to find it in it. You bring it to it. You say, tell yourself, I'm actually loving a neighbor through this. Mm. How have you encouraged people to bring meaning when meaning has been hard to find? And there's some futile work that you really can't bring any meaning to it. And so, but it's bad work. And, you know, I say, if you're really doing bad work, get out of it. But don't get out of it because you're doing basically good work, but there's some bad work dimensions. Because that's the way it is until Christ comes again. It's a mixed bag. We're in the messy middle. From VE Day, Victory Day in the Second World War, and D-Day, the day the beaches of Normandy were invaded. They said the war was won that day, but it carried on for almost two years. A messy middle, and we're in the messy middle. So I think we got to live with that. We got to deal with the mess as much as we can, but we're not going to get it totally cleaned up. And people say, well, you're not going to leave business because business is so messy. You know, I've got to go into the church ministry, and church ministry is going to be like heaven on earth. Hey, it's not. <laughs> I've been a pastor for 20 years. It's great. It's a very important service to render, but it still makes messy. Everything we do in this life is messy. When the, when the church lifts up the callings and vocations and professions of its people, whether they're going to school and the learning or they're, a, they're in the marketplace, they're a business person, they're a teacher, they're working in the government, they're, they're running a daycare, they're working at a daycare, whatever it might be. What does that do in a community when a church gets that? Oh, man. You know, I don't know whether you know Don Flo, but he owns a number of automotive companies in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. You know, he, he has special mornings for the, the sweepers, for the car washers. He honors them as much as the managers of various outlets that he sells a variety of cars from. And I just think that, you know, we ought to be doing that. 
you know, this hierarchy, you've got uh, missionaries at the top. And then under that, if you can't be a missionary, you should be a pastor. If you can't be a pastor, you should be a youth worker. If you can't be a youth worker, you should at least be in a people profession like teaching or doctoring or nursing or something like that. And if you can't do that, well, maybe... You know, you could be a homemaker and depends where you are in the culture, you know, where that is in the hierarchy. And then you can't do that. Uh, you could be in business or trades. You know, the trades are cleaner than business. Okay. So I started off in the trades. I was a carpenter. Okay. I've always built things. I've always designed things and so on. I was overly optimistic of what I could do. And I had, man, it was really tough. I mean, you know, it's fine if you're 21 and you're apprenticing, but when you're 45 and apprenticing, it's different. It's different. So <laughs> I had to learn a lot. And But then, then I bought into the business and I ran the business uh, with my partner. And so now I've gone one step farther down from trades and then there's politics. And then there's the financial realm. Oh, man. You know, people on the stock market and all the rest of it. And then there's unacceptable marginal occupations like stock brokerage. And then there's the unacceptable occupations. And so I just think this was smashed by Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. God came in working clothes and he made boats and houses. He was a tecton in Greek is a word that can be carpenter, it also can mean an entrepreneur, somebody who can design and build a boat or a house. And, you know, I'd like to think of Jesus as an entrepreneur, actually, because he was entrepreneurial. So you've got all our entrepreneurs listening. You got their attention right now. <laughs> but, you know, it's really something to think about that God came in working clothes. Or as Eugene Peterson put it, pitched his tent among us, you know, moved into our neighborhood. And you know what happened? For probably around 20 years, he worked and supported, as far as I can tell, his widowed mother. We're not quite sure about that. And uh, he had brothers and sisters and stuff. And then he, you know, he goes to John the Baptist and he says, you know, it's important for me to fulfill all righteousness. So he asked for baptism. And then God, the Father, speaks to God the Son at his baptism and says, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, bringing together the Messiah King, Psalm 2, and, and the suffering servant in Isaiah 42, verse 1. And he hadn't preached a sermon. He just, you know, sanding cradles while the world was going to hell. I am really pleased with you. I mean, just think of it. Yeah. Hmm. Paul, when a community of believers can understand that the priesthood, or like you said, the prophethood, or however you want to frame it, but just the empowerment of God's people to help a community flourish, could you maybe give an example of where you, how you've seen people who embrace their work as ministry, their work as that matters in the community to help their community flourish. Could you contrast that where you've seen that at work in maybe a, a developing country and then contrast that maybe with a post-Christian culture? Well, that's a very good question. In the developing majority world, we've spent 10 years, three months a year in uh, Kenya, mostly Kenya, Southeast Africa, uh, not Southeast Africa, East Africa. And, uh, 
you know, there the clergy laity thing, I mean, it's everywhere in the world. It's not just North America. In fact, North America is probably a little more egalitarian than Asia, for example. And I've spent a lot of time in Asia. You know, when they get it, oh, man. Uh, so I'm thinking of a school bursar who he can, he can just see that, you know, his work is very important and practical way of loving his neighbor. And it's a way of loving God. And he doesn't have to become a pastor or a missionary. And in fact, I'm thinking of one of my old mentors who's since died, actually. But, you know, he used to fly to student conferences uh, to speak. And he's sitting on the plane and the guy next to him on the plane says, uh, what are you doing? And he said, oh, he said, I'm, I'm flying to a Christian young people's conference and I'm going to be speaking. And he said, ah, you guys, you are just paid to preach. You're just paid to preach. And he said, well, I appreciate your viewpoint. He said, you know, let me tell you, the last time I went, they said, we hope we're going to have enough money to cover your airfare. But, you know, when we got there, they didn't have as many people as they thought. And they said, do you mind covering your own airfare? And we don't have an honorarium for you. And he said, we were up in the mountains. It was winter. And he said, they had these cabins, but they weren't heated. And he said, I was in a mattress above me and a mattress below me. And he said, I was like a chicken in a rotisserie all night long, you know, rotating because the top and the bottom were warm and the sides were cold. And he said, you're saying I'm just paid to preach. So it is a powerful thing, I think, when somebody is not paid to preach. And I, I think Paul, the apostle, really saw that. And, you know, he said, while I have a right to be supported and I've been supported, so I'm not against support. But he said, I have a right to be supported. He said, I don't use that right in order not to hinder the gospel. And I think, you know, Paul, I mean, you spend 8, 10, 12, sometimes 14 hours working in the marketplace. You know, you could have been planting more churches if you had been supported. You know, you could have had my, but he said not to hinder the gospel. So I just think again, you know, it is so powerful when people who are not professional Christians are able to put in a good word for Jesus. It's powerful. And if I could summarize a little bit, I'm catching that often we think of ministry and work as something different. Are those separate? <laughs> well, you know, there is, there is ministry, which is, you know, dealing with people's souls and caring for their person and their relationship with God. But that's not the only dimension of ministry. And I think we have to take our view of ministry from the Greek and the Hebrew word for servant and minister is the same word. And so when you look at the servant songs in Isaiah and Jesus as a servant, a servant leader, you say, oh, man, you know, I mean, this means that ministry is really serving God. And because you're serving God, you're going to serve the world and the people of the world, no matter what it costs. And so your work is part of your ministry. It's not the whole of it, but it's part of it. I just have one or two more questions for you. This is so good. For all of our marketplace listeners 
ministers, people called to minister and love God and love neighbor as teachers, as business owners or as craftsmen uh, and women, uh, maybe working as first responders. I mean, just the whole spectrum in our society. For all those listeners who are listening right now, how does this theology of work, ministry, how can this be an inspiration for helping our community that's been damaged by COVID-19? How could it give inspiration to be part of the restoration, the regeneration, the flourishing of this community? Yeah. Well, you know, part of it is lament and the lament psalms. I mean, you know, we have got to express, we have to express the sorrow that we have at what we've lost. Many of us have lost important relatives and we've lost livelihood. Many, many people have lost their livelihood or they're just on the edge of losing it. I mean, yesterday I was walking down one of the main streets here and store after store was closed. You know, it was really sad. But it's also a time for creativity and finding a way of working. Work is important. I theoretically retired from Regent College at 68 years of age, and I'm 83 and I'm still working because I think we're supposed to work till we die, okay? We can't work at the same intensity, same level, same amount of hours, same pressure, tension. You can't do it. But there are things we can do. And it's important we work. Why? Because we grow through work. We grow spiritually through work. In fact, you know, if you think about, you know, the person who either wins the lottery or has super wealthy parents who die and leave so much money, they never have to work again. And I keep asking the question, would that be a good thing spiritually? No, wouldn't be. Be terrible. And it's true. We grow spiritually through work. We love our neighbor through work. We express our gifts and talents through work. We provide for ourselves and our families. And we worship God through our work. So it's important. But during a pandemic, we've got to find ways of loving our neighbor, even if we keep a distance from them. Mm -hmm. You know, even if we can't actually hug them. (laughs) I don't know when the last time I ever hugged anybody except my wife. I think it was maybe last uh, February or January or something. (laughs) But there are things we can do to uh, love our neighbors. And I just pray that God will give entrepreneurship and innovation and creativity to, uh, especially to God's people during this time of the pandemic, so that they can minister to others and help people not just to become morose and discouraged. And even if, as you said earlier, you know, they can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but the tunnel is still pretty long, you know. That is a good word and a powerful word. This is a question that's just more probably for my curiosity, but you you mentioned that Elton Trueblood had been a mentor to you. You know, what what did you find maybe interesting and curious about Elton and maybe what is something that you've carried from him that, that really impacted you? I think he was the one who introduced me to the idea that the people in the congregation are not there to serve the pastor and the pastor's interests, but the pastor is an assistant to the people in the congregation to serve them. Mm -hmm. And that was huge for me. And the second thing that was huge for me is, I've already quoted this, which is that he said churchgoers, a vulgar, ignorant term, should never be used. He said, you can't go to church. You are the church wherever you go. 
And because of that, I think I started on a pilgrimage, and I just knew it was right. I mean, you knew that was the truth. And the pilgrimage is that I've tried to find God in everyday life. So, for instance, my massive volume, which I co-edited and authored a third of it with Robert Banks, the complete book of everyday Christianity, covers everything. I mean, it's not everything, but it covers about 300 different everyday topics. And I just spent yesterday reading the manuscript of a friend of mine called Pub Theology. <laughs> and, and these guys, they're from Brisbane, Australia, and uh, these guys... They hired a pub once a month on a Sunday afternoon, 4 to 7 p.m. And they said, we're, we're going to do pub theology. And so they did bottom-up theology. They started with life issues, migration, immigration, unemployment, divorce. And from their life experience, they wrestled with uh, Scripture. And the thing was fantastic, you know. And they finally persuaded them to uh, put it into a book. And the book is going to come out sometime. <laughs> maybe sometime this year. But, you know, I just think, hey, you know, Jesus said, I didn't come to make you religious. I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Fantastic. I think that's a really great way to finish our conversation for the podcast. Paul Stevens, thank you for your time and thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Whitewater Church podcast. To learn more about us, visit us online at whitewaterchurch.org or reach out to info at whitewaterchurch.org. Thanks for listening.